Welcome to Rooftop Church. This podcast is part of our Sunday sermon series, where each week we dive into the Word of God and the powerful message of Christ. So should we trust it? That's the real question. What I want to do this morning is I just want us to look just three assumptions that people typically make about the Scripture, and then two challenges that I'll have for us to trust it. If this book is what it claims to be, should I shape my life around it and believe in the God who claims to have written it? I believe we should, but let's look at these three assumptions first. I don't have an outline. There's not going to be anything flashing on the screen. But if you want to take notes, I'm going to give you several things that you could write down or or take in your phone that'll help you just as a basic equipping to defend your faith with gentleness and respect to those who might question why you believe. Assumption number one is that some people assume the Bible isn't reliable. It isn't reliable, meaning it just isn't true. Sometimes you'll hear people say, you can't believe word for word what is in the Bible, and then they'll point out some of the more spectacular events or supernatural occurrences recorded on the Bible's pages. The assumption besides that is that there's no evidence then to back up what the Bible says word for word, and that archaeology, they'll say, or other cultural things have disproved the Scripture many times over. Have you ever had somebody say, don't tell me you really believe that some guy named Jonah was swallowed by a whale, and that he literally lived in the whale's belly for three days and three nights. Now, see, you can't really buy that an actual sea parted, like it actually rolled back its waters, and there was dry land in between, and a bunch of people walked through it, and then when the enemies of those people came, the waters all rushed in and crushed them. Right. And then they'll say, so what you're telling me is you actually believe that a bunch of people marched around a fortified city without weapons, and they sang these songs, and then they blew these trumpets. And this city, which had not been taken before, suddenly the walls came a-tumbling down. You can't actually believe that. Now, there might be truth on every page, they say. There might be a moral in every story, but you can't take it literally. Have you ever heard that? Amen? You ever heard that? I hear those things, my first question is always to ask, well, have you ever read the Bible for yourself? Have you ever read it? Have you ever really studied it in its context? Have you investigated the preponderance of evidence that does support its claim? Have you used critical thinking to really examine it like you would any other letter or any other book that claims to have truth in it? That's something that you might want to do before you make this huge decision about your life that it's not true. I don't know for some of you that are are a little older, but um, years ago I read Dan Brown's book, The Da Vinci Code. You remember The Da Vinci Code? It it lasted a long time on on the New York Times bestseller list. I I have to tell you, it is admittedly fun to read. It's action-packed. It carries along really quick. There's lots of twists and turns. But really, the meaning behind the the novel is very undermining to the claims of the Scripture. In fact, at one point, one of the key characters says, the Bible is just a product of man, my dear. It's not a product of God. 
History has never had a definitive version of the book. And then the very people that so casually refute the claims of the Bible, even though it's been placed under the microscope of of scrutiny for hundreds of years, will ardently argue that Dan Brown and the Da Vinci Code have it right. They hear some expert on the Discovery Channel, or they see something on the History Channel that, uh, that says the Bible has dozens of historical errors, and they're willing to take that expert at their word, or at his word, even defend them without investigating their backgrounds, or their bias, or their reliability. (coughs) Do you know what you will discover if you actually investigate the claims of the Scripture? If you just research the reliability of the book of the Bible that you have. Here's what you'll discover. There's lots of empirical evidence out there that completely validates and supports the claims of the Scripture, including those portions that are supernatural in their accounting. There's manuscript evidence. There's archaeological, uh, archaeological evidence. There's testimony evidence available to us everywhere. I'll give you a couple examples. For instance, there was a time when scholars said that there was no way that Moses could have written the first five books of the Bible or the Pentateuch. There is no way. Why? Because they claim that, that, that the world did not have a formal written way of language that dated before 1400 B.C., There was no archaeological evidence that showed they could even write before 1400 B.C., so there's no way that Moses could have possibly written those books and the dates in which the Bible claims. That's what scholars said until they found the Elba tablets in 1975 and realized, wow, actually human beings were writing documented uh, languages in a documented language 1,000 years before Moses was even born. Over 20,000 different fragments and pieces of written literature were found at that time, and all scholars said was, that's interesting. Oh, that's interesting. (laughs) Others said the Bible isn't true because it talks about the Hittite civilization. There's no evidence in all our excavations that a Hittite uh, civilization in the Middle East really even existed at that time, and yet the Bible keeps on talking about Hittites. It's just made up they said. And that was good and great until uh, archaeologists found the former capital of the Hittite civilization. And then they kept digging and they discovered more about these ancient people. And when they compared what they found about the people in their own writings and compared it to what the Bible had written about the Hittite in the scriptures, wouldn't you know it was a perfect match? I mean, perfect And you know what scholars said at that point? That's interesting. (laughs) That's interesting. Then there were some some scholars on the Jesus Seminar, and they said, fortunately for historians, some of the Gospels uh, Constantine attempted to eradicate, like the Gnostic Gospels, managed to survive. The Dead Sea Scrolls were found in the 1950s in a cave hidden near Qumran in the Judean desert. Now, this just floors me whenever I hear things like that, uh, because people just take it at face value. These scholars said this, they take it at face value. Okay, they found these documents in a cave near the Dead Sea, they said, and these documents basically disprove the Bible or have documents that were not in the Bible and show that the Bible is false. But I'm going to tell you right now, you can't get any more inaccurate than in the two statements 
that those scholars made. For instance, the Dead Sea Scrolls were not found in the 1950s. It was an amazing find, but they found, discovered them in 1947. And there wasn't a single copy of the New Testament document of a gospel, of a Gnostic gospel, or anything. It, it even predated the life of Jesus. There's nothing in the Dead Sea Scrolls that relates to Jesus in, in any way as far as a direct document, but what they did find, what they did find, is they found some of the oldest Old Testament manuscripts ever discovered. <laughs> they basically found nearly uh, um, uh, writings from nearly every Old Testament book, including nearly the entire book of Isaiah. And when they compared those ancient documents, those ancient writings found in, those, in that cave, they basically said that whatever tidbit they had from whatever book of the Old Testament was identical to the tidbit that you have in your Old Testament. That the book of Isaiah that you hold in your hands today is identical to the one that they found in the Qumran caves that predated some thousand years. Actually, in Qumran, they date almost 2,500 years ago. But the book of Isaiah is the same. All those other quotes from the Old Testament are the same. Now, that is interesting, isn't it? See, beloved, the Bible has been the most scrutinized book in the history of mankind, and rightfully so. It claims to be the very word or revelation of God, and any book that makes such a claim ought to be heavily scrutinized. Yet the Bible has stood the test of time for thousands of years. Archeo um, uh, Professor D.F. Albright said, the excessive skepticism shown towards the Bible has progressively been discredited. Discovery after discovery has established the accuracy of numerous details. It has brought increased recognition, recognition to the value of the Bible, at the very least as a source of history, the very least. Remember, they didn't have copy machines back then, right? They didn't, you couldn't zip the file, you couldn't send it to the cloud, you couldn't press a button and suddenly print off a hundred copies of the New Testament. Instead, scribes would take it and write it out word, from, word for word from one page to the next page, and it was a painstaking process. Why did they take so long to do it? Because the people of the ancient world believed that the Bible was the inspired word of God. They believed when they held the word of God, they held something that came from God himself, and they honored that. So when the scribes would transcribe one page to the next, they would write one line across, then they would look at the document from which they were writing and literally count the letters forward and backward and forward again. They triple-check for mistakes and errors. Then they would go to the next line and they would do the same thing. And once they had an entire book of the Bible copied, they would start all over. They would start all over. Eventually, there were dozens and then hundreds of copies of copies of copies that dated all the way back to the original. And we can compare those copies, and if you take them all and you compare them, and then you take copies even in the Dead Sea Scrolls, you find that the Bible is incredibly solid, that it's integral, at least in terms of its manuscript evidence, at least in terms of the way that it has been transcribed for us over these many thousands of years. So you can trust that the words that are in it date back to the original, 
Now, whether you believe in those words and what the message is is another story, but you can at least trust that the Bible you have in your hand is accurate. Now, I believe there's all kinds of evidence for our faith that the Bible is indeed a trustworthy document, not just manuscript evidence, but some of the historical evidence that I gave. There's internal evidence, too. Think about it. The Bible keeps a central theme going from one page, page one, the first page of Genesis, all the way to the last page of Revelation. And it never contradicts itself in spite of the fact that it was written over a 1,500-year span of time by over 40 different authors on three different continents. There are 66 books written on, in our, that we have in our Bibles, yet the internal coherency is absolutely stunning, and there is no other ancient work, nothing. It's not even close. All the ancient works that you've heard of, Homer and the Iliad, everything else, none of them even come close when you compare copies and do all that in terms of their total reliability. Nothing. Only an eternal, all-knowing God could oversee a project like that and make it so cohesive. The Bible is reliable. Assumption number two, people assume that the Bible isn't relevant. Isn't relevant. Meaning it's out of touch and doesn't speak to the modern reader. I've actually heard people say, well, you know, the Bible is just a bunch of stories of goody-two-shoes people who don't drink, they don't smoke, they don't swear, they don't dance, they don't gamble. It's not related to life. I mean, I can't get anything out of it because it doesn't speak to me in my situation today. Now, I find that that is incredible because I'm not sure what Bible they're reading. I mean... The, the Bible I read ought to be rated R in certain places because of the level of content that's there, the violence, the raw grit of life that is told right there in the Bible. We think our world is so dark and corrupt, and it is, but it, it, it uh, barely holds a candle <laughs> to what was going on in Corinth and Jesus and Paul's day or uh, what uh, the Old Testament heroes had to deal with, with the civilizations that were around them. Now, because there are probably some parents here with young children, I'm, I'm going to be careful, but I, just by illustration, I am going to share with you some highlights from just the first book of the Bible, written thousands of years ago. Cain is jealous of Abel, and he kills him. Lamech introduces polygamy to the world. Noah, the most righteous man of his generation, gets drunk and curses his own grandson. Lot, when his home is surrounded by residents of Sodom that want to violate his visitors, and if you haven't read the story, you'll know what I mean, and instead offers his own daughters so that those people can violate them. Yippee, aren't you glad you're not one of Lot's daughters? Later, his daughters, though, get him drunk and they get impregnated by him. Now, if that's not dysfunction, if that's not real life, if that's not the real housewives of the Old Testament, I don't know what is. Oh, it keeps going. Abraham marries Sarah, but she seems to be infertile. He sleeps with her servant, Hagar, impregnates her. They have a son named Ishmael. Later, Sarah does get pregnant, has a son. They name him Isaac. 
but she becomes so jealous of Hagar and Ishmael that she kicks them out of her home. Isaac has two sons, Jacob and Esau, but Isaac, like his mother, plays favorites with Jacob, and the two brothers are bitter enemies for 20 years. Jacob marries two two wives and ends up with both of their maids as his concubines, as well as getting into some kind of fertility contest with them. Jacob's firstborn son, Reuben, sleeps with his father's concubine. Another son, Judah, sleeps with his daughter-in-law when she disguises herself as a woman on the streets. Nice. She does this because she's childless and because her first two husbands were so wicked that God killed them both. Jacob plays favorites between Joseph and his 11 sons. The brothers want to kill Joseph, but in the end, they just sell him into slavery. I don't know about you, but these kinds of people need a therapist. They need Dr. Phil, Dr. Oz, Dr. Spock, Dr. Seuss. They need somebody, okay? That's just the first book of the Bible, And one of the reasons I believe that the Bible must be inspired by God and not by men (laughs) is because of how real life it is. If I were writing, I would want to make, especially if I had to write about myself, I'd want to make all the stories look perfect. I'd want every character to look like a hero. Look, if you follow Christianity, you'll be a hero too, right? You'll be perfect. That's what I would want to do, but God didn't do it that way because he's talking about people that he created. He's talking about people who sin, even our Old Testament heroes and New Testament ones, except for Jesus, of course. That makes them very relevant to us. In fact, sometimes we just get to see the good and the bad and the ugly in them. The Bible isn't about perfect people. It's about real people who are confronted with a perfect God. The Bible has practical wisdom and advice about life and relationships. For example, in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 33, the Bible says, However, each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. That statement was written nearly 2,100 years ago. Notice it doesn't say that both husbands and wives are to love each other in that verse. It says husbands are to love their wives and wives are to respect their husbands. It's different, but it's true. Today, modern studies, secular studies, people who aren't Christians, over and over, studies have proved that man's primary relational need in a marriage relationship is to be respected. And a woman's primary need in a marriage relationship is to be loved. Is to be loved. Yet thousands of years ago, it's right here in the Bible. Do you need parenting advice? Open the Bible. Advice on business practice, advice on personal finance, time management, fitness, exercise, healthy diet. It's right here in the Scripture. Pastor Tavis said last week, rightfully so, that if you want to know the will of God in any area of your life, then you have to know the Word of God because it speaks to every area in which we live. It's no wonder the scriptures say that there's nothing new under the sun, that God deals with it all, and that the grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Assumption number three. So people say that it's not reliable, it's not relevant, and then they say there's no one right way to interpret it. 
I hear this a lot now. They say we can't really know the message accurately because we're all flawed human beings. Today, I'm the preacher, but I'm a flawed human being. So what they say is that because of our own biases and our own experiences, there's no way to get to an unbiased truth. We can't accurately tell you what God intended because we're just flawed people, and you're flawed listeners. Frankly, I'm starting to hear this more and more in the church. So you have preachers that are not accurately handling the word of truth and interpreting what the original author said to the original audience and then applying it to a 21st century culture, but instead are abandoning that and using the the Bible as kind of a self-help book to teach us things about how to improve our lives but not necessarily transform them. But listen to this Bible verse from 2 Peter 1, verse 20. It says, But know this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but by men moved by the Holy Spirit who spoke from God. But why through words? Why did God decide to speak to us through written words? Well, I think it's obvious, but words, written words, ensure the most precise communication happens between the author of the words and then future listeners of the words. And doesn't it just make sense that if God, who created human beings and then created human languages for the purpose of accurate communication and then delivered the words of the Scripture through human beings inspired by the Holy Spirit, And if the Holy Spirit ensured that every word they wrote was exactly what God wanted revealed, then there must be a way to accurately know what God said. Is God such a poor communicator that he can't speak words that we will understand regardless of our flaws? Of course he can. That's the whole purpose of it. It's the whole purpose. And God gave us the written word because he wants us to know him. He wants us to know his unchanging character, his inviolable values, his everlasting love, his absolute holiness, his divine wrath, his way of salvation. That's why the entire Bible, not just the New Testament, is important to Christian people. 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. You have to have both the old and the new, or you're just half a Christian. You can't know God fully just by the New Testament. You have to know Him in the Old Testament. By the way, He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He doesn't change. There's not different gods in both parts of the Bible. He's the same. But if you want to be fully equipped, you got to know him from beginning to end as he has revealed himself to us. Now, I will admit that occasionally there's some difficult things to understand in the Scripture, and that's why God has called certain people to do the hard work of the Bible study. And there are sound interpretation methods to discover what those difficult things actually communicate. You know, one of the, one of the things for which uh, I praise God, and I, I really wouldn't, you know, the church should on a more, huh, 
a more regular basis, but um, you have two very good preachers here. I've listened to them many times. And I, I can tell you that, that, that Pastor Scott and Pastor Tavis absolutely do, a, do I, I know they work hard at it. Uh, I can tell. And they're good, sound Bible preachers. And although there are some difficult things, listen, listen to me, friends, most of the time, though, they're not so difficult to understand. We just don't want to hear it. But you can, you can take the word of the Lord almost all the time at face value and apply it yourself. Okay, I'm almost finished. I mean, the wheel out, but the plane hasn't landed. But it's descending, okay? We're almost on the runway. I got two quick challenges for us today. First, I just want to challenge you to read it. Just read the Bible. I mean, today, if you haven't, or if you tried and stopped and tried and stopped, will you just draw a line in the sand and say, hey, starting this Sunday, I'm going to, as a matter of spiritual discipline, just read the Bible every day. One verse, three words, three paragraphs, three chapters, whatever it is that you do. Just do something so that you can read it. Now, if you get a one-year Bible plan or something like that, they're going to skip around. They're going to give you some passages in the old and some in the new. You're going to get to passages like in Leviticus. I mean, Leviticus has derailed many a one-year Bible plan, okay? I'm just going to tell you that. It's, good. it's just derailed it. But just hang in there. Just hang in there. There's a lot of good things in there. And, and the other thing I, I just want to say to you is if you don't have a Bible, if you don't, would you let your pastors know? I mean, if you don't have one today, I will literally personally buy, a, buy you a Bible today. There's no greater investment. Open Doors is all about Bibles. We're all about smuggling Bibles to people, getting the Word of God to people. I mean, this is what we do. But I'll just go, we'll just go straight down to the bookstore after church and let's go get a Bible. Now, you may ask, what translation should we use? Uh, uh, PTAV can, can direct you to a, to a translation of the Scripture, whether it's in English or in a foreign that will be accurate to the original manuscripts as they were copied and copied and copied, which I mentioned before. If you've never read the Bible before, if you've never started a reading plan, I, here's a very practical suggestion for you. Would you just start with the book of Luke, which is the third gospel or the third book of the New Testament? I love suggesting this to people because Luke was a, a medical doctor. He was an everyday Joe who loved Jesus and hung out with Paul, and he determined to write a gospel that was based on a thorough investigation of the events, and he actually conducted hundreds and hundreds of, uh, uh, of uh, interviews with eyewitness testimonies to the life of Christ, and then he wrote a chronological account of the life of Jesus. So he'll start when he was born, or actually before he's born, and lead you all the way up in a chronological uh, fashion through his ministry and to his death and resurrection. Just read the book of Luke. You'll learn about Jesus. It, it, you'll learn all about him. And then you can start a Bible plan. 
If you, if you download the Scripture, you can go to any number of places. version, for instance, so many Bible reading plans on there that you'll find. Second challenge and that I'm almost finished is <clears throat> don't just read it, but I want to challenge you to try it. You pick one thing that you're reading in the Scripture that you heard from the sermon, just one even, and just do it. Because the Bible actually says about it, about it, about us, it says become doers of the word and not just hearers only. You actually have to do it to see it in action. Now, some of you, maybe there's somebody here saying, well, why should I try something I don't even believe in? Here's my question to you. What have you got to lose? You tried everything else and it isn't working. So give the Bible a try. Even if you don't believe it, you'll see how incredibly practical it is, but i got to warn you, once you start reading and trying what the Scriptures say, you're about to have an interaction with the supernatural. This is what happens. See, the Bible says about itself that the Word of God is living and active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow, and it judges the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. The Bible isn't like any other book absolutely unique because it has this power to get inside of us and it just starts to do something in there and it lasts. There was a movement several years ago by, by a relatively small number of people, but uh, they really did not like the Bible. Frankly, they just feared it. So they created a sticker and they wanted to go to all the hotels and put on the Gideon Bible you ever been, it, it, it's hard to find them anymore, but uh, it used to be a Gideon Bible in every, in every, oh, desk or something in the hotel room. Now, the Gideons are a group of people that would just print the Bible, and then they put it in there. They, they just label it the Gideons, but they wanted to actually put this statement on it, caution, this book may change your life. And I wish they would have. I wish they'd done that. Because that's the power of the Bible. If you dare, you will try practicing the counsel and advice given in the Scriptures, and you will rub shoulders with the God who inspired its writing. Your life's going to change. Jesus said in Matthew 7, 24, Therefore, anyone or everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain came down, and the streams rose, the winds blew and beat against that house. Yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain came and the streams rose and the winds blew and beat against that house. And it fell with a great crash. See, the storm is coming to everybody's house. Nowhere does it say, nowhere did Jesus say that if you build your house on the rock that the storm won't come. A storm's going to come. And when it does, Jesus says, if you build your life by reading my word and then doing it, you will stand the test. You will stand the test. Because in this great book, there is hope. You're going to realize there's comfort, that there's wisdom, that you're going to be challenged, that God is going to move in your life. That's the power of of the Scripture, and that is why that first church devoted themselves 
to the apostles' teaching.